Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature sex and housework, the comedy of science, starquakes, mosquitoes and strokes. But first up, here's the news with Aaron Cook. In tonight's news, starquakes set planets ringing. Stroke therapy in rats looks promising for humans. Why do you get bitten by mosquitoes? Well, it's because you breathe too much and you stink. And green tea and cigarettes. A new approach to fighting cancer. First up tonight, a team from Sydney University has found evidence of starquakes in over 100 stars by analysing a new set of high-quality data from the Kepler telescope. Astrophysicist Dennis Stello said the quakes are caused by convective motion within the star. Convection breaking on the surface of the stars caused the entire volume to oscillate. The researchers found that the periods of oscillation, in combination with the measured brightness of the stars, could be used to calculate the age of the stars, which provides a valuable new method for working out which stars in an area of sky belong to the same cluster. In medical news... Scientists at the University of California have successfully treated a stroke therapy in rats. They administered a naturally occurring human protein that restored 99% of lost movement if administered to the brain of rats, compared to only 30% restoration of lost movement for untreated rats. Darius Gleason, a student who worked on the study, said it's becoming more and more clear that the brain is like any other organ. It has a lot of potential to regenerate. The therapy is yet to be tested on humans. Staying with the University of California, researchers have identified the chemical odour produced by humans and animals that attracts Culex mosquitoes, carriers of the West Nile virus. Research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shows that a chemical called nonanol plays an important role in alerting mozzies that a blood meal is nearby. Nonanol acts synergistically with CO2, another known mosquito attractor. Traps laced with nonanol and CO2 caught 50% more mosquitoes than traps with CO2 alone. And finally, drinking one cup of green tea per day can reduce the risk of lung cancer by over 90% in smokers, according to results presented to the American Association for Cancer Research by medical researchers in Taiwan. The link between green tea consumption has been known about for some time, because polyphenols in tea are strong antioxidants. But this was the first study with the right controls in place to prove conclusive. Non-smoking green tea drinkers also benefit, with a reduction of over 80% in the chances of developing cancer.
next up, here's Mark West with Correlation of the Week. There's nothing quite like pulling on the rubber gloves, splashing each other with dirty dishwater, and then reaching for the vacuum cleaner with the adjustable nozzle to get you in the mood for love. This week's Correlation of the Week is housework and sex. This study comes from Constance Gagger from Montclair State University and Scott Yabuku from Arizona State University who discovered that wives and husbands who spend more hours in housework and paid work report more frequent sex. They theorise that women and men who work hard also play hard. The report, which is called Who Has the Time? The Relationship Between Household Labour Time and Sexual Frequency, which was published in the Journal of Family Issues, documented a study of 6,877 married couples, which showed that couples who devote lots of time to work and chores still make time for sex. The results contradict the idea that time spent on household chores reduces the opportunity for sex. Worth remembering next time this particular excuse is used on you. The authors controlled the results for gender ideology. That is, they controlled for the various viewpoints people have on their relationships. For example, a wife with a 1950s mentality might regard doing lots of housework and having frequent sex as part of her marital responsibilities. The housework-sex link was found to exist no matter what viewpoints each member held. Housework was defined as cleaning, preparing meals, washing dishes, washing and ironing clothes, driving family members around, shopping, yard work, maintaining cars and paying bills. Husbands spent on average 23.4 hours per week performing these household tasks, whilst wives spent 41.8 hours a week. Husbands spent on average 33.8 hours a week working, compared with 19.7 hours for wives. This means that the wives in the study spent a total of 61.5 hours each week either working at their job or at home, compared to 57.2 hours for their husbands. And just so you know how you stack up, the couples in this study reported having sex 82.7 times a year, which is about one and a half times a week. Sexual frequency went down with age and the length of the relationship. Protestants had more sex than Catholics, although presumably the Catholics had more unprotected sex. Having small children reduced frequency, but once the kids were older, the frequency went back up again. Couples who spent more time in paid work also reported more sex. This led the authors to conclude that individuals may be achievers across multiple spheres. They theorise that as life gets busier and time gets tighter, some couples can successfully balance their time commitments to make time for sex. So there you have it. Couples who make time to do their household chores also make time for loving. What do you guys think? Is this uh, your experience? Well, uh, I would never comment on my own experience over the airwaves, but... uh... (laughs) The the first thing it leads me to is, um, isn't it just possible that the guys that are doing all the housework were just far too scared to report all the sex they weren't getting? That's that's uh, possibly true. In a, in a survey, there's always an issue of uh, people reporting incorrectly. So you're a bit disbelieving. No, I just I think in 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 studies where people are reporting their sex lives, I think there's always room for um, embellishment. That's true. It's like those Ralph magazine reports that come out every now and then where, you know, people are having sex 25 times a week. Yeah, all the, all the Jurex survey and, and, yeah, and things that's right. like that. Yeah. Usually large numbers are supposed to, uh, and clever questions are supposed to get around that to some degree. That's right. And they, they tried to control for a whole bunch of different things, you know, the, the ideology, but also your age and, and your income and the positions that you're in. I'm not entirely sure how they do 
control but for surely, that. But surely, surely, couldn't it be considered then that maybe the housework, being seen to help your partner, is in some way some foreplay? Because you're, you're, you're showing that you care and that you're not just letting them do all the work. Possibly. Perhaps it's a sign of just, uh, yeah, being a, a strong couple in that you... You work together to get things done in your lives. You don't, you don't depend on each other. Uh, you know, it's not one person depending on the other for a particular thing. Perhaps, I think that's sort of the theory that they have. Well, I would have thought if you were the partner who was doing most of the housework or most of the paid work or all of both, that you might feel some resentment and therefore that's a right. little less sexual desire. That's right. Maybe your relationship's not very happy if this is the case. Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans And go out to the car and change the tire Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe And then go fetch my slippers And boil me up another pot of tea Then put another log on the fire, babe And come and tell me I let you wash the car on Sunday Don't I warn you when you're getting fat Ain't I gonna take you fishing with me someday Well, a man can't love a woman more than that Ain't I always nice to your kid sister sweet and you know it ain't feminine to fight so You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. And now Victoria Bond speaks to Brian Mallow, the comedian of science. Science comedian. Comedian of science. Science comedian. He's one of them. Let's find out. I'd like to start off with asking you a few questions. What, do you, what exactly is it that you do? So you're a science comedian. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic, and, and I have been for a long time. I don't have a background as a scientist, mm-hmm. but from the earliest age, I was a science enthusiast. I was a big science fiction fan. Oh. So uh, when I started doing comedy, that stuff informed my act. It's like I did some private events for Apple or Microsoft or Dell, and there were engineers in the room, and 
I pulled out those jokes and they killed. And I was like, wow, I just got to make sure I always get that audience at my shows. So you haven't changed the jokes. You've just changed the audience. Well, you know what? Well, no, that was the start. (laughs) And then since then, I have. It's like then I really began to focus on that and cut away the other stuff and just be a science comedian. And it doesn't always mean that every joke is really about a science topic. Sometimes it's just applying sort of science and rational sensibilities and language and metaphors to any topic. Mm-hmm. For instance, like whenever I, I, I noticed a long time ago, whenever my mom would lose weight, my dad would gain weight. <laughs> and when my dad lost weight, my mom gained weight. It was like the conservation of mass. <laughs> See, the thing is, I like performing for actual groups of scientists. Mm-hmm. Like I performed at the National, in Washington, D.C. or nearby, I performed for NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And there were physicists and chemists and, and all sorts of flavors of scientists in the room. And you don't have to pull any punches. You can do anything for them. But I like performing for general audiences too, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, you might not do the exact same stuff the exact same way. And especially those general audiences, if, if I can get them to laugh at something that they wouldn't have thought was funny, would be, yeah. yeah, interesting or funny, and you go, see, look at that. That, that is, that's like fun with science. How did you get into comedy? I was in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and I saw a sign for the funniest person in Austin contest. And I liked stand-up, and I was, I was ready to try it. Mm-hmm. And so I did this contest, and I actually did okay in it. And yeah. I got the encouragement to keep doing it. I was wondering, where where'd you get all your inspiration? Well, I mean, everywhere. That's always been a question. People ask com- comedians <laughs> that always. And, you know, you, you do, what you do is you go, I don't know, my life, I look around, like whatever, any experience, I, it's all input. It's all data. It gets processed by the machine. And when it comes out on the other end, hopefully it comes out a little funnier than when it went in. Do you have a pet science topic? I don't know. I I probably... I really like physics and astronomy, and I think I would tie that to the sort of science fiction that I grew up on, you know, uh, like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Uh, Clarke and Larry Niven. I don't know if you know Larry Niven, but very hard science, lots of neutron stars and black holes and 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 that kind of stuff really turned me on when I was uh, like was reading in junior high and high school and later. And so (laughs) that kind of stuff I really love. But. I, but I like it all. I mean, I, I don't want to write off biology. Physicists will say that all science is physics. <laughs> that biology and chemistry really it, 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 it are fundamentally, they are physics. When you get down to it, there's physics underlying all of them. But then the mathematicians always get the last word. Cause... Right, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> also wanted to ask you a little bit about your CD. You have a CD out, is that right? I do. It's called Rational Comedy for an Irrational Planet. And it's about 45 minutes of science-flavored stand-up comedy. Actually recorded at uh, a comedy club. I sell it through my website. Anyone can contact me, sciencecomedian.com. You also do some videos for Time Magazine's website, is that right? Yeah, they're science videos. And they're kind of fun. You know, the funny thing is they're not all that funny. They're not as funny as my stand-up. Some of them have some humorous moments. But the last one I did was pretty straight. It was about the Herschel Space Observatory. Wow. And um, 
I don't think that one really has anything funny in it. It's just, if I can convey just my interest and passion for the subject, I think that that's pretty good. And they're all at time.com. Do you think you'll be moving more towards science education, like doing more serious pieces like you've been doing for time? Well, you know, that's a great question because when I started out, I'm just, my motivation, I was just a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And a friend of mine once said, you have, your jokes have more information in them than most comedians' jokes. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know if that was a, an insult <laughs> or, a, or a compliment, but it was an interesting comment. And um, I've always had a little bit of education in there, maybe, just a little. But, but I was a comedian, so all that matters is you're funny. Once I started becoming, evolving into a science comedian, it became more interesting to me to try to get, like, now what can I do with this? I should actually convey information and make it humorous. So, absolutely, I have been gradually moving along that spectrum to more and more science education. That's so good, because one of our pet peeves actually at Diffusion is the fact that scientists are so rarely trained to do any public speaking whatsoever. Right. I think it makes science a really, really hard field to really get excited about, because scientific papers are really quite boring a lot of the time. So Challenging, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know what? I think there's a lot of awareness of that today, that scientists need to be able to communicate to the public. Brian, I'll be honest, um, the reason I heard about you was <laughs> through these uh, really, really wonderful a virus walks into a bar set of jokes where you just <laughs> invent these scenario for multiple science organisms, I guess you could say, entering right. bars. Do you think you could tell us a little bit more about those? Well, I'll tell you how those, yeah, they, the, the, the reason, the way those came about, there's a little science museum in Washington, D.C. called the Marion Koshlin Science Museum um, of the National Academy of Sciences. And I've done three shows for them. Um, so after I did the first one, they asked me if I wanted to come back and if I could do a show about infectious disease. Really? And I'm like, I wanted the gig, so I said yes. And then later I'm like, wow, a whole show about infectious disease? What was I thinking? A comedy show about infectious disease? And then I realized that Bill Cosby could probably do 20 minutes on having a cold, right? And then I realized I'm not Bill Cosby. This isn't going to be that easy. So what happened is like over the course, you know, by the time that next year rolled around, I basically, I, I write with my girlfriend, Tara, as well, we, uh, and we came up with a lot of stuff, and we had, like, a nice little presentation that was themed on infectious disease, but in order to come up with more jokes, I had written something about a virus, and I was talking about viruses a little, and I just came up with that idea of that, taking that old standard sort of hacky, sort of a blank walks into a bar, I said a virus walks into a bar, and I wrote a joke that I really liked. And then I wrote a couple more. After that gig, when I did those at a show, they were amongst the most favorite uh, bits. So I started writing more on other topics. And when you do a bunch of them together, they have a certain momentum. <laughs> and it's really, it's, it's so funny because I don't think they're representative of my whole act. Yeah. But... This video went out and it got a couple hundred thousand views. And now people are judging me by this, this sort of kind of joke. And, you know, the rest of my act isn't really 
as quite Courtney. like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little. You work so hard to create original, intelligent <laughs> material. Like you craft something beautiful. Like like I like a like I have a joke that I love to say. It's almost poetry. I, it's almost more poetry than joke. That one about um, women have passed through my life like exotic particles through a cloud chamber, leaving only vapor trails for me to study for clues to their nature. And here's some of Brian's stand-up. If you like science, it's kind of hard to believe that more people don't like it, isn't it? It's, like, it's, it's just so fundamental to, 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 to who we are. It's just curiosity. My mom, one of her favorite things to tell me uh, used to be stand-up straight. Did you ever get that from your mom? Stand-up straight. That is such a mom thing to say. I think mothers have been telling their kids to stand up straight for longer than we realize. Perhaps even to pre-human days. <laughs> they say apes are our closest cousins, but we never have them over. That's not cool. You know, just the fact that so many people, in this country especially, the fact that so many people still don't believe in evolution might be the strongest evidence that it really isn't happening. <laughs> Very often, people ask me, do scientists have a sense of humor? <laughs> Which, again, you know, ridiculous question. They do, but if anything, if I had to say something about some scientist's sense of humor, sometimes it's very literal. And uh, so you have to be scientifically accurate, and you also have to be literal. Like, here's an example. I was performing once, and I was talking about the heat in Arizona, and I said something about it being 110 degrees in Tucson, 125 at Lake Havasu. And I said, that just sounds like science fiction. You're talking about the surface of Venus. And from the back of the room, someone went, no. <laughs> Venus is much hotter than that. So when I tell some jokes, you know, comics, we want laughs, first of all. Second of all, clapping is nice. But what I've decided I have to accept and just appreciate is sometimes when I tell a joke like that speed of light joke, <clears throat> sometimes I look out and I see someone, they're not laughing, but they're thinking, they're like going, uh-huh. They're looking the joke over and they have found it sound. <laughs> no obvious flaws, therefore carry on comedian. A virus walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve viruses in this bar. The virus replaces the bartender and says, now we do. <laughs> An infectious disease walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve infectious diseases in this bar. The infectious disease says, well, you're not a very good host. <laughs> That's okay, groaning is acceptable. The joke is sound. Two bacteria walk into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve bacteria in this bar. The bacteria say, but we work here. We're staff. <laughs> a room temperature superconductor walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve any superconductors in this bar. The room temperature superconductor leaves without putting up any resistance. <laughs> An infrared photon walks into a bar and says, is it hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> I like to start to shoot for smaller and smaller portions of the audience, so uh, 
a neutrino walks into a bar. Who's with me? A neutrino walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve neutrinos in this bar. The neutrino says, hey, I was just passing through. <laughs> Schrodinger's cat walks into a bar <laughs> and doesn't. The Higgs boson, now who's with me, walks into a church. The bartender, the priest, <laughs> the guy says, we don't allow Higgs bosons in here. The Higgs boson says, but without me, how can you have mass? <laughs> Great. I will accept that. <laughs> a statistician walks into just your average bar. The bartender says, we don't serve statisticians in this bar. The statistician says, well, you're just mean. <laughs> and finally, just one more, gratefully, right? Some helium gas drifts into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve noble gases in this bar. The helium doesn't react. <laughs> Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate prayers, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Aaron Cook, Mark West and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.